Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my personal raincoat of love, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. Why don't you remind us of the clue for the show that we'll be getting to know this episode? Yes, well, I believe the clue was that the uh, author who inspired this work could not make it to the show's off-Broadway opening, but did write a comic strip about missing the opening night. And of course, that was Alison Bechtel, who in 2006 wrote Fun Home, uh, wrote and drew, because she is a cartoonist, about her childhood, which was made into the musical, also called Fun Home, written by uh, Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone. And uh, which is a a big old modern classic. A big old modern classic that I'm thrilled to be diving into. And full disclosure, I am a part of the extended Fun Home family. So I am definitely a little biased when it comes to the show. But I do think it is absolutely brilliant. And I'm thrilled that we're diving into it. Wait, what does that mean? You're part of the extended Fun Home um, family? I worked. So I my first like job in New York, one of my like first professional jobs was working for the lead producers of Fun Home. Um, so I, when I was still in school, um, Mike Isaacson, who is the artistic director, executive producer of Muni, um, I was his assistant. And so I helped on the Tony campaign while I was still like in school, like some background information stuff, not like major. I'm not pretending like I was a major player in the world of Fun Home. Um, but then when I moved to New York, and I did actually get to see a run through uh, of rehearsals uh, that I watched um, actually somewhat blind because I stepped on my glasses the night prior. And so I had to like hold up one of my eye, like one of my glasses, the glass from my glass. I held up like occasionally like a monocle and like checked in on everyone's locations and set it down because I didn't want to <laughs> <laughs> Classes. That is a true story. Um, but anyway, then I moved to New York and I worked for Fox Theatricals, which is um, which at the time was him uh, and Kristen Kasky, who was another lead producers. Um, and they shared an office with Barbara Whitman, who uh, was another lead producers. And um, so I like worked on the day to day upkeep from the producing end um, of Fun Home uh, through from like for like a year, from like October to September. Wow. So went to lots of ad meetings about Fun Home, was around for the launch, the national tour, like that kind of thing. So I've seen it and seen Sam's production of Fun Home probably more than I've seen any other like production of anything. And that would be Sam Gold, the director of... I should not name drop, but yes. Yeah, that's just full disclosure. I'm a big fan of the show and a lover of it. And it also kept me employed as I moved to New York City so <laughs> very nice very nice I have no particular connection to the show other than I saw it uh both at the public and on Broadway and I like it yeah. uh, it's a good it's a good one if you don't know it um it's a it's a take a listen on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever to the, to the album it's an incredible score but we'll get it we'll dive in so with incredible that score and incredible book. I will say, oh, yeah, but we'll the, talk about that too. The book is incredible too. I just don't want to get too much into like recommendation territory. We're yeah, not quite true. there. We're working on a segment for you all about that. But anyhow, uh, so uh, that will bring us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Fun Home in 60 seconds. Are you ready? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be. I think you, this one will be 
I, I think this is one of those ones that's going to be either very easy or very difficult, depending on how much detail you want to go into. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Okay. Ready? Small Allison, medium Allison, big Allison, go. So um, basically, Fun Home tells uh, the coming of age story of Allison Bechtel, who is a lesbian cartoonist, um, and she's going back and as she's trying to write the memoir of her life, um, or of her childhood, she's investigating the memories of her childhood and particularly her dad, who was a closeted homosexual and killed himself right after she came out of the closet when she was going into um, when she went to college. Um, so basically, there are three Allisons. Like there, there is the big Allison, who's like the narrator character, basically. Medium Allison, who's in college, and young Allison, who's a kid. Um, and then you meet her family, um, including like Helen, who is her long-suffering mom, who kind of knows that Bruce is gay, um, but uh, and is sleeping with, or at least sleeping with men. Um, and uh, yeah, it's all about their like you know family, the family dynamics, and how that produces who you are as a person. And uh, a coming of age story, really, uh, about coming out as a lesbian in college. Well done. That's right at one minute. Well done. Yeah. It's okay. I mean, that's like the only way to really talk about it because, like, plot wise, like, it's a lot of vignettes and lots of like, it's not linear and the way it's told. So it's kind of hard to like chart. Yeah. It's always on an emotional arc more than it is like a plot arc necessarily. Yes. It's definitely a very interesting. I would venture to say a very, it's a non-typical musical structure um, that feels a bit more like a play to me than it does like a tr conventional musical, but a little bit hard to, to summarize in an easy, uh, neat fashion. I think it's really, I think you raise a good point and an interesting point. And, and as we get into the history of the show, in a lot of ways, Fun Home is a musical that acts like a play and is received like a play. Um, that is not to say that it is just a play with music, that it is absolutely a musical. It does not fit into, it should not, if anyone ever tries to describe it to you as that, tell them no, because the official stance of the No to Show podcast on that phrase is that, like, why can't it just be a musical with a good book? Um, when it comes to the phrase, I don't know if that, if that logic cracks, if that makes sense. I hate when people say, it's really a play with music. Shut up. It's a musical with a great book. <laughs> Shut up. I know. And I do think there are plays with music, which to me are generally like plays in which the music is very, does not hold any of the drama. It's sort of like a, but you do hear that phrase a lot applied to like, quote unquote, like serious dramatic musicals, like people who are trying to differentiate something from like, some dumb razzmatazz musical and that we do not accept because if you know one thing from listening to this podcast musicals are legitimate artistic form there is nothing inherently more serious or better about plays than there are about musicals and if you feel that way or why are you listening to this actually no i'm not going to say that anyway if you feel that way continue listening to this podcast we so that we may enlighten you, you. <laughs> <laughs> we will convince you otherwise yes so um, so with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Fun Home. We can never go back to before. So Fun Home the Musical really originates with Fun Home the Graphic Novel, which was written by the cartoonist Alison Bechtel, who is one of those artistic figures that has really... She's really carved out her own place in the arts in America. Like, she really forged her own path. Um, and it's funny, when I was looking up her story, I was like, I know all this already because 
Fun Home, the musical, which is obviously based on Fun Home, the graphic novel, is is autobiographical. It's a graphic memoir that she created, and it is very much her story. I mean, there is nothing, you know, all of those details are are real. Her mother's name is Helen. Her father's name is Bruce. Her brothers are John and Christian. Like, everything that's in there is exactly what her story is. So I don't really need to tell you the origin of, of that because you, you can see the show and you can you can know that story. Um, but I will say that, so after she went to Oberlin, as is in Fun Home, um, she wanted to apply to different art schools. She was a cartoonist and she wanted to pursue that. And she was rejected from these uh, different art schools. And then she worked in publishing, but she was creating this comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. And that was picked by a newspaper, at least initially for just a very small ones, but then it grew and grew in popularity. That started in 1983 um, and ended up becoming uh, what she was primarily known for, for for many years. And interestingly enough, too, even if you don't know who Alison Bechtel is, you probably know the term the Bechtel test, which is something that has uh, been applied to mostly movies, but it doesn't have to be to movies. And that's the idea that uh, something... Does something feature a scene in which two women with names speak to each other about something other than a man? That is a test for whether a film or TV show or whatever is kind of like passes a sort of basic feminist test. Um, it is called the Bechtel test because uh, Alison Bechtel featured that question in uh, one of her Dykes to Watch Out For strips, and it really got picked up from there, even though, as she said, it was really a friend of hers. It was their idea. It wasn't her idea. So she, I think she has a little bit of like, ooh, about it. But that is kind of what she is oddly most known for. Um, however, in 2006, she published Fun Home, which is a graphic memoir about her youth, growing up with her father and her mother in this house, this Victorian house, um, all of the things that you see depicted in the show. Um, and that was very, very successful. It really won a bunch of awards. It, it uh, took off in a way that her previous work hadn't been as well known. And so from there, it came to the attention of the brilliant Janine Tesori and uh, Lisa Crone. And I will pass this over to Michael to tell us more. And that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone approach um, approach Allison with the idea to make it into a musical. Um, and at that point, she had been approached by a lot of other, like, you know, film companies to turn it into something. Um, and she had turned them all down because she was afraid that if it were a bad movie, like, it would live on forever. And she didn't want that. Um, and it might tarnish the book. Um, but when they approached her about making it a musical, which she had definitely never thought about, she was like, well, if it's a bad musical, it just kind of disappears. So sure, why not? hilarious last words it has a really interesting developmental process that really has been it continually continually um was given space at not non-profit organizations to figure out and and find itself and and establish its vocabulary which because of its journey like continued to change um very much up until the Broadway production, which is kind of when the script was frozen. Um, so the first step of their development was at the Ojai Playwrights, Conf um, Playwrights Conference um, out in California, uh, where, and then they went to Sundance and they went to all these different places um, 
well, really those two places to really develop the show where um, at one point Raul Esparza was involved and playing Bruce. At another point, Maggie Gyllenhaal was involved and did some songs with David Hyde Pierce. Um, but a lot of like really, uh, it was really centered around how Allison's drawings and her drawing process and how that, like the creation of that art essentially was was a main thrust of the storytelling. Um, and then they did a uh, reading at the public in 2011, uh, which is when it really started to take shape as actually about Allison's life, to my understanding. Um, <clears throat> and that it went very well. There, there were commercial producers that got involved. My mentors, as I, as I mentioned, um, were at that reading because of their relationship with Janine. Um, and so they kind of, in collaboration with the public, kept supporting the development of Fun Home in all these various states because um, the public was also quite committed to doing it, but with a little bit of, I don't know that it was officially commercially enhanced, but there was like coordination happening. Um, so again, this is really just like an advertisement to me for like giving artists space to develop their work and letting like places that are not intensely commercial, um, letting those spaces be made for artists. And without, even though there were commercial producers around, there were very like, hands-off commercial producers who were helping Shepard, but really letting the artists do their thing um, and letting the piece become what the piece was, which is is just different to how we talk about how a lot of musicals end up being developed, I feel like. So they do a scaled-down lab production at The Public next in 2012, um, and that then leads into a, a workshop that they do at the public. And that workshop turns into what is then the production of the public in the fall of 2013, um, which was set on a proscenium and really was met with quite, um, quite acclaim at the time. Um, a fantastic New York Times review. There was a piece, um, I think, in The New Yorker about someone sitting behind Stephen Sondheim watching Fun Home and the point of view of this author being that like Sondheim was watching the show he could never write. Um, and which is a really interesting and became a complex you know, thing, I think, for some people. But it was a, it's an interesting take that I just remember reading at the time and being really struck by that, like, hmm. this work has a certain level of an emotional depth and nuance that S Stephen Sondheim made possible in musical theater. And yet it was the piece that, like, he could never actually write, which because of the experience of the, the people involved, which I just thought was really interesting and intriguing. That is intriguing. It's funny because I was, I would say, and we could talk about this more, but um, this is a piece to me that very much is written by women. So I would, I would, that was the first place my brain went, which is that as much as I think Sondheim is a genius who could, can do many, many things very brilliantly. I, I do feel like this, this is not exactly a story for, for uh, a dude to write in the same way that. Oh, 100%. And I don't think that that's, I, I think that was the point of the author was like, okay. yeah, like what he, this is what he, like he was watching the, the, the fruits of his labor basically in, hmm. in home, which in a very complicated, you know, way dealing with homosexuality and all these things. So yeah, I think that was basically the point or that's at least what I took it to be. Interesting. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that off Broadway, you know, uh, production had a lot of acclaim and extended to the public many, many times. Essentially then, um, the biggest kind of step, honestly, in Fun Home's kind of, I think, journey to legendary status or really catapulting it into the 
the realm where it's now like as talked about as it is, um, is the fact that it did manage to transfer to Broadway, this very unlikely um, little show that could. Um, and part of that was, um, I was they were offered Circle in the Square, um, which is an in the round theater uh, in Manhattan. The show had never been staged in the round. It had always been developed for a proscenium. Um, and they thought that it might work. They thought that it was interesting. Um, but they actually went back into a workshop to figure out how that would change how everything about the show and how everything was staged. And it really was a revelatory um, process for all of them. Um, Beth Malone talks about it a lot in their interviews and things, just how how much the show changed and how she thought it was going to destroy the show. And yet it really like opened the show up in a way, um, taking it and putting it in a non like a non-traditional musical theater space, essentially. Um, and then it opens on Broadway in April of 2015 to um, pretty much the same wild acclaim. Uh, they made some cuts um, on the way from off Broadway to Broadway. Um, Al for sure. They did actually do an off Broadway recording of the show, which is again, a little bit atypical, um, but um, they cut one of the songs um, and really continued to focus the story on Bruce and Allison's like emotional arc. Um, that's really, and the non-linear kind of aspect of it all. And then it gets into a very heated Tony race that I, again, was around for uh, and uh, won, wins five Tonys, including Best Musical as the little show that could and runs for a healthy, respectable year and a half, recoups its initial investment and then has a national tour and is now licensed all over the place. That's the not, that's like the very not artistic way to talk about Fun Home's journey. Yeah, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in, I guess, 2014, one of those years, 2013, it was, it was at the public in 2013, but whatever year that makes it eligible for the Pulitzer, it was a finalist. Yeah, they have, for the they, have they have their own rules. And then, you know, at one point, Jake Gyllenhaal was attached to potentially develop it and play Bruce in the film adaptation of the musical. So um, Alison Bechtel's fears will may still one day come true. I mean, but, say that. Um, but yeah, it's a really, I mean, and the cast that, you know, Michael Cerberus and Judy Kuhn and Beth Malone, uh, you know, eventually join the show at various steps in this process. Um, there was also a cast, a slight cast change from the, um, from the public to um, Broadway. At one point, the early bit of the show just like wasn't totally working. Um, and it just, there was a constant, there's constant conversation amongst the creative team about making sure the show doesn't get too dark because it's dealing in such dark topics. It's set in a funeral home. Like it's, and, and just the topics are so, so heavy um, that Lisa Crone especially was a big drumbeat of like, this has to be funny. This has to be funny. This has to be funny. Um, and it has to be energetic. We have to find like moments of joy and show. And so Janine Tesori very wisely um, at, at one point when like the early bit of the show wasn't working wrote, I guess effectively the title song come to the fun home, which the three kids perform as a, like a fake commercial that they're doing to publicize their family's uh, you know, funeral home. And it was one of those things that like took the show from like zero to hero in terms of like that little sliver of production number, like as like right at that, like 15, 20 minute cusp of the show um, they describe as having like an electric effect on the show and completely changing the back half for the better. Um, so there's a lot of conversation about that as the development process goes. And also about like realistically depicting like butch lesbians and how that happens. And 
Lisa Crone is a huge, huge, huge um, reason that that was so successful. Um, and particularly in the, um, uh, in the character of Joan, um, who is really the, the, the butch that, uh, helps Allison, medium Allison at the, in the case of the show, realize that, uh, he's gay. And so, yeah, those are the tidbits really. Yeah. It's funny that you should say that about the fun home number. Cause when I was reading it again, I was like, God, you know, the two younger brothers are not all that necessary to the plot. Like, um, and it's, and it's funny what you say about developing a show. I feel like you can tell that this was not a show that was developed with a really commercial eye because one of the things that costs more than any other thing you could possibly have in a show is children. Um, because they, you know, you need to, there's, you have the tutors and the thing and it's a whole, it's a whole stuff. So the fact that there's kind of like two additional characters that are not really necessary to the plot, um, that are children, I'm like, they, it's they very can't double, Like can't double as anything they else? can't like... double with anything. Yeah. And, and I, and I do feel like the story is so intimate between, you know, these three Allisons and her father and mother that, if you said to me, like, we're going to cut the two boys, I would say like, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. Like it, it, it does. I forget they're in the show because I don't think you, you see a lot of Allison sort of like sharing her journey as being a child of these two parents with her brothers. Like there isn't a sense that they're all in it together. There's really just a sense that Allison is very um, alone figuring this out for herself. And I think part of that's the structure of the show. It's, it's, you know, it's, big Allison trying to remember this stuff. It, like any relationship between a child and their parent is really like a singular thing, no matter if you have siblings or not. Um, but it is funny that like that number changed everything for them because in some ways that number is not really a key part of the show, which kind of goes back. But in the grand tradition of shows that are not really um, very lighthearted having comedy numbers just to, to give you a little break. I mean, at Signature, we just did a really wonderful production of Pacific Overtures and both, you know, Chrysanthemum Tea and Welcome to Kanagawa are completely unnecessary for the plots of the plot of that show, but, you know, gives you a little reprieve from, from this very serious other stuff. So anyway, that's a little tangent about comedy. And no, but it's a good, but it's a good point because like in these shows that are, you know, serious and dealing with heavy things, like musicals are just inherently an audience, an audience centric, like, you know, you're constantly gauging how the audience is receiving the story and making sure that they can deal in this world that is heightened just because people are singing. Right. And yeah. speaking. And so there is this like weird calculation to be made about that, that journey and so it's a it's an interesting like key crucial part that yeah could you cut it and the show would still make sense and the story would still hold actually yes but like you would lose a key emotional mm -hmm. break that you need and like that is also crucial to making the show land the way you want it to land so it's just an interesting it's interesting this this art form that we have dedicated our lives to <laughs> yeah, it is but you know i mean i think it's theater in general right like not to bring it really back to ye olde days of theater but like you know ancient greece theater like it would be you would see your tragedy 
And then between them, they would be what are called satyr plays, which are those like spoofy comedies. And like the notion that you cannot have anything that's really, really heavy without also having something light to balance it out is built into the DNA of theater just fundamentally, I think. So, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Days and Days? All right, so let's dive into Days and Days and Days, which is Helen, Allison's mother's song, um, her only solo song and really her moment in the show, which is, I think, part of the brilliance of this song. Um, I just made the mistake of watching a uh, slime tutorial, as they say, of Judy Kuhn singing this off-Broadway, and, and that was a mistake because now I'm crying. So anyway... If you want to go to YouTube and see an absolutely devastating performance of this song, Judy Kuhn, who originally played this part off and on Broadway, ugh, just rips your heart out. Anyway, um, so as I said, this is Helen's song, Allison's Mother, um, towards the end of the show. This is after um, Allison has come out to her parents and her father has written a sort of strange letter back. Um indicating that Helen was having a problem with it. So um, we haven't really gotten a ton about Helen over the course of the show. She's sort of been a sort of a secondary character to Bruce, who's obviously such a dominant personality um, in life, in the family. So uh, dominant as a character as well. And obviously Allison, this whole show is about grappling with her father's legacy. So Helen has been kind of a support to him in the house, feels like more passive. She's often been um, yelled at by Bruce, really uh, abused emotionally, I would say, or at least there are indications that that is, that is happening. We see a little bit of it. Um, but we haven't really been waiting for Helen's big moment. And the fact that she has this one, I think is, is brilliant and, and part of this whole um, dynamic of this house. Um, so this song, just to set it up exactly, Allison has brought Joan home. This is three months after she has first gone to college. Um, Helen welcomes Joan. She's very welcoming with Joan and, and kind. And then she and Allison have a moment. And Helen has poured Allison a glass of wine, um, which I think is the first indication that this is a very different interaction than Allison has had with either of her parents up thus far. Um, obviously when you go to college, you, uh, that is a, a rite of passage into adulthood in many ways. Um, and I think for many people, the first time your, your parent treats you as a sort of adult by doing something like pouring a glass of wine for you, um, also, it's it's a glass of wine she pours when Allison has, has said no, but she does it anyway. So it's a kind of an interesting, like, whether it's Helen being in a little bit of a state of her own, not hearing, whatever. But, like, there's – anyway, it's a very – it feels like a very momentous glass of wine. Um, and then Helen, who has been very open with Allison about Bruce's sexual history, her affairs – his affairs, rather – um, including some of the tawdry details like Bruce coming back with body lice, like really Helen has not held back. And it's been kind of an abrupt, um, shocking thing to hear because we were not expecting that from this character. We were not expecting that level of honesty. I think when we hear that Helen is having a problem with Allison coming, 
out, we expect that it might be something more aligned with what we would traditionally expect, you know, just a sort of homophobia, a little uh, something less complicated than Helen's real reaction, which is that her experience of Bruce being gay and Bruce having these affairs sometimes with boys has been such a um, devastating part of her life that now her daughter being gay, we're, we're getting the impression that that is part of that relationship. Um, not so much that it's just, you know, she, she doesn't like the idea of Allison being gay. I think she just has this tremendous baggage with uh, Bruce's homosexuality. So um, anyway, this is all going into this particular conversation with the glass of wine, Allison, medium Allison, obviously, and Helen. And uh, Helen tells Allison about really the first time Bruce yelled at her on a, on a trip to Paris. Um, Helen didn't really understand why then found out later that the, the army friend that they were visiting had been Bruce's lover. So like from the get go, there's this complicated, um, relationship with Bruce's secret life, um, Helen's relationship with this all, it's all in there. And so in response to this story, Allison says, I don't, you I don't know how you've done it. And so that is really the inciting incident for this particular song. So let's dive in. Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue. See how we polish and we shine. We rearrange and realign. Everything is balanced and and so the song starts with a callback to one of the very first numbers in the show in which the family is preparing this their pristine Victorian house, Bruce's pride and joy to be shown off. Um, and then the song felt like it was very much about the house and the perfect family union that we that the world saw. You know, they're they're literally um, shining up this house. Everything looks perfect. Uh, it's cleaned. You know, all the kids are participating. Um, and now, obviously, this feels very, very different. It's about the outer image of the happy family that was being presented. Everything looks sparkly and shiny, but that's clearly clearly just an appearance. Um, and another meaning, which is that Helen herself, I think, has felt, you know, she's presented a, a fine, like, emotionally healthy person, and then now we're going to see what's really under that. And I think it's perfect that this is a cappella. It's really stripped raw for her. There's nothing to add any adornment. It's only Helen on her own, as she has been in this marriage. It, it really feels like she is just trying to keep this together, but not with no support. She's just on her own. We feel her vulnerability without this instrumentation. Um, and we're just perfectly set up for what we're about to hear. And of course, the line that she can't finish, she stumbles on and, and uh, the word is serene. That line is everything is balanced and serene. And of course, that is because there is no serenity anymore. Helen can't even pretend that that is an element of what she has here. Days and days and days, that's how it happens. Days and days and days. So from that original acapella, we roll into this 
different melody, now with accompaniment. This is new. This is not a callback to another song. This is Helen. She gets her own uh, melody. She gets her own instrumentation. And it's this interesting rolling phrase, days and days and days, a melody that matches it. You can feel it kind of rolling around, and then that's how it happens. She's really kind of answering Allison's statement about uh, not knowing how Helen has done it all of these years. And that's how it happens. Feels almost, it's a little bit lower. It's almost an aside. So part of this feels like she's just answering this question for Allison, but also really kind of exploring this herself. And the music is melancholy, but it's not, it isn't sort of full of pa passion or anger yet. Um, it, it feels like it's just bittersweet. Um, this is difficult for her, but it's not necessarily like despair. Made of lunches and car rides and shirts and socks and grades and piano and no one clocks the day you disappear. So we get this great list of mundane things that have filled these days. And like the earlier phrase, it feels rolling and repetitive, kind of one thing after another. Nothing is differentiated, right? It's just a bunch of stuff that just one day after another is, is there. Um, socks and things. It's just like, you know, nothing, nothing big and important, just little stuff. And it's interesting because these first things are not about Bruce. They're about her life as a mom and a little bit about her own life. I mean, she says playing piano and she's a pianist. We've seen that in a, in an earlier scene. Um, but snuck into this list is no one clocks the day you disappear. It's rhymed with socks and it's placed right with other stuff on the list, which is a beautiful way to emphasize this point. You don't musically recognize at first that this phrase is going to be different, but then we get, we get it by how abrupt disappear is complete with a brief loss of accompaniment. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, you don't even notice that phrase. It's not like building to this whole thing about like, and then I'm gone. It's like, no, no, no. It's like this all daily little normal stuff. And in with this normal kind of rolling melody is just the fact that she has disappeared, which is this massive thing, but you don't even notice, right? It's just one of the other things that's in there. And then we get this beautiful instrumentational little echo as though she really has gone, right? It's kind of like a little bit of an answer to the earlier thing where it's just her voice with no instrumentation. Now the instrumentation is just continuing and she's disappeared, literally. Um, and this is such an interesting, this is so interesting to hear because it's something you hear from moms that they feel like they lose their own identity because their lives become so much in service to their kids, their husband. Um, and this really beautifully illustrates that musically, but it's also interesting that her, this is her first response to Allison saying she doesn't know how she did it. Helen isn't talking about being with Bruce here. She's not talking about that stuff. She's about to, but she's talking about having lost herself in the daily life of the family. She's talking to her daughter, but she's not excluding her daughter from the tough reality of this. I think as with the wine glass, this is Helen talking to Allison as an adult and telling Allison things that, that are difficult for a child to hear from a parent, which is that being your parent partially has caused me to lose myself um, over time. And so that's a, a really kind of striking thing. Days and days and days, that's how it happens. 
days and days and days Made of posing and bragging and fits of rage And boys, my God, some of them underage And oh, how did it all happen here? So now we get a second verse with more instrumentation. She's really getting into it. And she's ready to talk about Bruce and what life was with him, not just as the mom of this family. And one thing I love about the instrumentation here is that as she's singing about Bruce's posing and bragging and fits of rage, all of which we've seen, and then these boys that he had affaired with, affairs with, including those who are underage, which we'll talk about in just a second, um, we get this piano music, these kind of like chords, um, or what, what do you call that? Like uh, go up and down the, I'm forgetting the word right now, but like this, it reminds us of the Chopin etude she was playing earlier in a scene that was happening while Bruce was seducing Roy, the kid's babysitter. So even though she's singing about Bruce, we're musically reminded of what she was doing, playing the piano while he was having these affairs. So that little moment of instrumentation feels like a portrait of her ignoring what was happening at the time because it's a callback to a scene in which she is not she's just playing her piano she's in that world while this other thing is happening in the other room um so she's not excluding herself from not blame here but she's she's not positioning herself as someone who was completely innocent of all of this she's she's calling back this time where she just was in her own world um, not participating, not not seeing, not not acknowledging what was happening in the other room. And I think that's very, very intentional. Um, and of course, we have this moment of acknowledging that they were underage with my God, which is such a beautiful, like, she knows how bad that is. Um, this is such a messy, complicated situation that has happened over the course of years. And in this song, in the music, in the lyrics, and and it, obviously in, in this performance, that's wonderful, but it's, it's such an interesting, it's so interestingly ambiguous here. Like she's, she is not excluding herself, but she's also not hiding the pain of this and, and how awful this was. Um, so it's really interesting. And then of course that pushes her, this like thinking of this and the boys pushes her to how did this all happen here, which rises. It feels passionate. She can't ignore any of it anymore. She really has to look at it, right? This is really not about hiding away while this is happening and pretending it's not happening. Now she has to see it. There was a time your father swept me off my feet with words. We read books, strolled through Munich at night, drank beer with friends, discussed the places we would go. And he said I understood how the world made him ache. But no. But no. So after the passion of how did this all happen here, she is pushed to a memory of the beginning of her relationship with Bruce. Um, and we can hear how much happier a time that was in this melody. It's just beautiful and hopeful and lush. She's traveling, sharing hopes and dreams. They have friends, which there's no evidence of in, in their contemporary life. Um, talking about where they're going to go, their life together. Um, 
And the part that feels the most hopeful is he said, I understood how the world made him ache. Um, and as lovely as this other stuff was, it is, it feels like it's this connection with him that was the happiest thing for her, which is interesting because even when she was happy with Bruce, it was all about him, right? It's not that he was focused on her, that he was saying things to her that made her f feel understood. It's that he said she understood him. It's always all been about Bruce. And I'm not even sure if Helen is aware of that, but I think that's such a brilliant choice in these lyrics, which are by Lisa Crone. Um, because it really gives us a portrait of Helen. Like she's, she's not averse to putting him first. It's just that he's, you know, after this became such a, uh, monster basically. Um, but even in the beginning, we get that little hint. And then of course we get this haunting, but no repeated first without accompaniment, another very internal moment. And it's a little bit ambiguous as to what this is in response to. Her understanding Bruce's ache feels like the most um, obvious, you know, that she thought she did understand what his ache was, which was that the beauty of the world, you know, the world made him ache. Um, but she clearly didn't because what made him ache was this, like, secret he was hiding, this secret life. Um, or maybe it's about the world they would go, the places they would go, the life they were going to have. Um, I think it's maybe all of those things. And the second but no brings her from that internal moment back into the room a bit with Allison to say that all of this is responsible, um, including what she had hoped for initially, you know, her initial ideas. And it's interesting when you watch this gorgeous Judy Kuhn performance, there are two moments in this song where Helen looks at Allison in the whole song. Most of it, they're just sitting at a table and Helen is kind of looking off into the distance. It's, it's a sort of internal thing. One of the moments where she connects with Allison, where she looks over at Allison, is the beginning telling her about uh, there was a time where, you know, they were in, in Europe and, and had these hopes and dreams. It's like she wants Allison to know that Bruce was at one point this beautiful, like that, that they were in love and they had this wonderful time together. Um, and I think there's something so beautiful about that. Just like, it's important for her to tell Allison that it wasn't always like this, that, that there was a time where it was different and better before it got so very bad. That's how it happens. Days made of bargains I made because I thought I wife I was meant to and now my life is shattered and laid bare so the hurt of remembering those early days propels her into this which is the most bitter verse she made these bargains because she thought she had to as a wife that was what she thought it was going to be and she ruined her life by doing it this is such a deeply feminist statement while at the same time is so deeply personal and true for this character um, there are many women who are taught this, who still feel this, that to be a wife and mother means to sublimate yourself, um, to make compromises, to just turn a blind eye to stuff. But this is also so specific to Helen, living in this Victorian show house with a man who has belittled her and lived a not-so-secret life that everybody knows about. You know, like, this is, it's, it's so 
it's really an illustration of like the more specific it is, the more general because it is very specific to Helen's life and experience, but it also feels like it's speaking to um, the experience of many women um, at this time in this culture, whatever. It's like, it's, it's a beautiful portrait of this. Um, and I really love the scansion of as a wife, I was meant to, and now my life is shattered and laid bare. It's not what you would expect. And puts wife right in the middle of the phrase, which rises to shattered and lays, laid bare. Um, in the same way that uh, you, no one clocks that's, that you disappear, the day you disappear, is just kind of like folded into this other stuff. This puts wife right in the middle of the phrase. Um, so it's kind of being a, a wife is not held in any special regard to Helen anymore. She, it rises to shattered and laid, laid bare. She's different from the person who thought that she was supposed to do this as a wife because now she just, being a wife is just thrown in there somewhere. It is not um, something that allows this kind of thing to happen again. So she's learned, I think. Days and days and days and days and days and days and days. And so after the bitterness of this last verse about her life being shattered and laid bare, which also I forgot to mention has this like great piano, just kind of chaos a little bit. And the piano is very much Helen's instrument. And we can hear that like this, you know, as opposed to the perfection of her playing Chopin, like this finally is like, it, we can hear the breakdown in the piano. Um, but now she has this beautiful pylon of days and days and days and days and days. It just stretches out and builds and builds and builds and builds. She's, she's gone to the emotional low point, right? Um, her life is shattered and laid bare. She's admitted that her life is ruined. We've gotten this chaos piano. Um, and then from there, it's just, we can hear it just relentlessly. It keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And then builds to this reprise of Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue. But whereas the last one was shaky and acapella, this one is fully realized. And it feels even more frightening for that because now we know what it's hiding, right? It's a little little scooch touch of the Sondymian, like pretty women, um, you know, the, the most beautiful melody hides the most frightening realities. Um I think we're getting a little bit there. Like the robustness of this um, is sad and terrifying because we know that it's so fake. We know how bad what is being hidden is now. Um, so the result of all these days piling on is not only that her life is shattered, but that she's really good at putting on a show. And this time she can complete the verse. She doesn't stumble on Serene. And of course, the phrase is like, chaos never happens if it's never seen, which is the next part. Um, and now we know exactly how many meanings that phrase has. The house looking pristine, even though it's been frantically maintained and cleaned by the family, but also the family seeming perfect while in crisis this whole time with Bruce's secret life. 
And now Helen herself, having pushed away all of this for years, seeming fine while she was actually in a form of, of quiet despair in this really terrible marriage for this long. It's really heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking all the more because we get this, like, sh you know, this beautiful, shiny music here. Don't you come back here. I didn't raise you to give away your days like me. Ugh, so beautiful. So we get this beautiful instrumental days and days and days uh, at the beginning of this section. A reminder of this ghost Helen at the piano playing while the days passed. Um, you know, it just is a sort of final illustration of, of all of this time and what she's been doing, just kind of, you know, focusing on something else, I think. And then we get this most extraordinary line, don't you come back here which is such a gut punch to hear from a mother to a daughter. I mean, we really are not expecting this. And we know that it isn't angry or rejection. It has nothing to do with Allison's sexuality. It's nothing at all. It's, it's a gift from Helen, I think. And the ultimate sacrifice a mother can make. She's telling Allison, whom she's treating like an adult here, to escape the family, to escape Bruce, to live her life and escape Helen's own fate of giving away her life to this charismatic, problematic man. Um, and, you know, and she includes herself in there. It's interesting because she's not, you know, she's not going to escape it. We very much get the sense that she's going to stay here and keep living this life, but she doesn't want Allison to, to suffer the same fate. So it's kind of like a sacrifice. I mean, it's like, leave me behind, basically. Um, and then we also get this really beautiful, fascinating line, I didn't raise you to give away your days like me. Helen has been so secondary as a parent to Bruce in Allison's telling. I mean, Bruce is obviously um, a, a fascinating, charismatic person and, and, the, and the person that Allison is grappling with in this whole narrative. But now we get this indication that Helen has been actively raising Allison to be independent, that, Allison's, that Helen has been doing this kind of secret work this whole time. Helen is complicated. She's been complicit in some of Bruce's actions. She's chosen to turn a blind eye in some cases and stay in this bad scenario. She can be a bit cold sometimes, I think it's fair to say. But she's also giving Allison such a gift here. It really feels like a life raft thrown from a sinking ship, and it's a complete heartbreak. It's kind of like, I think the unspoken thing is like, it's too late for me, but it's not too late for you. You know, it's, as a, as a motherly gift, it's really extraordinary. And um, this song has given us acres of insight into Helen. We weren't waiting for her to have her moment. And I think the show is brilliant in that way. We too were kind of probably ignoring Helen or thinking she was sort of a doormat with Bruce or not as interesting as him. Allison certainly centers Bruce in her memories, but all this time Helen has been just as active and interesting as him. And this song doesn't let us forget that. This song is a gorgeous portrait of a complicated woman and it reframes so much of Allison's life, of the show, for us. Um, not to mention, I think, providing a really key moment in this narrative um, that 
kind of frees Allison to approach what comes next, um, which she has been dreading. The car ride with her father, the last moments that she had with him before he did this this terrible, mysterious thing of, of killing himself. Um, and we know that this is the most alive and painful experience in the show for her, for big Allison as well, that it's going to be the toughest thing for her to face. Um, and I think this song is so key because this is Helen kind of freeing Allison from her childhood a little bit. You know, Helen is basically pushing Allison to become an adult. It's it's really a key part of Allison growing up, I think. And it allows Allison to go into that next part um, free of a lot of what might hold her back as a child. Like, as, as clear as possible, basically, to go and figure out this next thing. Um and it's just such an extraordinary song. I mean, it, it's such a portrait of this really, really complicated person that that just breaks your heart. And in this performance that Judy Kuhn does, the other moment that she looks at Allison is, don't you come back here, and for the end of this song. And she does this tiny little thing. Um, credit to Judy Kuhn, credit to Sam Gold. I'm not sure where this comes from, but she just kind of moves her hand on the table closer to Allison. Um, and I think it's sort of such a good indication of, of a person for whom, like, we don't get the sense that this, this household was a lot of, there wasn't a lot of affection or love really. Um, and I think here we have a little tiny indication of like Helen giving that love and affection to her daughter in a way that she, she still can't really just be emotional, um, emotionally open because I think there's, there's too much that she's put under all of this for so many years, but there's just this little, like in that little hand gesture, there's such love, um, for her daughter. And it's just, just an extraordinary moment in, in an extraordinary show. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues that the show faces both internally and externally. So I, you know, there's we've we've talked already about how the show behaves like a play in many ways, and audiences take it in like a play in in so many ways. And I and I think that is one of the like external factors that does kind of a you know impact the show and how it's produced, whether at a regional theater on Broadway, you know, or anywhere in between. Um, but I don't really want to spend a ton of time talking about that because I feel like this show has such substance that is worth diving into and, and investigating. So setting that external stuff aside, I think we really have to contend with Bruce's actions as a, a, an abusive, like a sexually abusing teacher um, and person. And the show really engages with his, is, is wanting to talk about his homosexuality and the life he didn't get to lead and how that is the, you know, that's resulting in these actions, but he's still doing these actions and, you know, having sexual relations or, you know, some people might say grooming, it's not quite pedophilia, but it is the, the, the sexual interaction with teenage boys. Um, and as we've advanced the conversation around consent culture and what, and what all that means, I just think like if the show were written today, there would be a different way to that we would have to engage with those scenes 
and the character and the characters surrounding that a little differently. He is like, obviously, or if you've seen the show, but if you haven't, like he does get in trouble with the law with, with his actions with boys. It's not like he is like not held to account necessarily by the, by the case of the law, but the show itself is not engaging in the fact that he abused, abused kids who are not his, but his students and, and teenagers. So Annika, I'm curious how you felt about that reapproaching the show all these years later and how, how we as creatives and audiences engage with, with that. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, and I feel like, I, I mean, I think the show, I, first of all, I think this is a, a, a exquisitely written show. I think the book of the show is, is really beautiful. Um, and very subtle. I mean, I know we're not going to talk about necessarily like we already went to the sort of play, um, music, musical, the thing. But the one point I will make on that is that I think it's, you know, Lisa Crone is usually a playwright. She's not usually a book writer. Um, and I think it's very interesting that Janine Tesori has worked with Lisa Crone and Tony Kushner, both playwrights. Um, and David Lindsay Abair. And David Lindbear, I think, I I think that that is like a well. I think there's something about Janine's music that fits very well, but that's a different. We can talk about that later. Anyway, um, so I think there's a beautifully written book, and I think that the book doesn't necessarily. I think the book doesn't give him a pass. I think there's a difference between giving that character a pass for that um, and not necessarily adjusting it. Um, I do feel like it is never treated as sort of okay. Although I think the character of uh, Roy, the babysitter, um, I think it's clear to me in that interaction that Roy is not necessarily being taken advantage of. I think he's sort of participant in um, their sexual encounters um, in a way that doesn't make me worry about it or feel like he's really like this is a dangerous thing I think he's sort of being presented as a sort of close enough to an adult that he's making decisions um I think the the kid in the car with the beer is a little bit more um uh obviously ambiguous and a little bit less uh we see less of that encounter and I think that's on purpose I think the idea is that you know they the show leaves it unseen so that we don't necessarily know exactly what happened besides the fact that, um, you know, he was, he was arrested for that. Um, and to me, I think I, you know, we are seeing all of this show through the eyes of the now adult daughter of this character. And the fact that that is all that we never forget that really that everything that we are seeing is through this veil of what the child is remembering, what she's reading in, in her diaries, and what she as an adult is attempting to um, wrestle with. And so to me, you know, if the show kind of stepped out of itself to make a point about like how abhorrent his behavior was or, or what he was really doing and how unacceptable that is, um, I don't think we would get 
I don't think it, although it would be, I think something that was more palatable to our current audience, which is very much like you cannot kind of deal with any of these questions without having that moment of like, we have to reinforce how unacceptable that is. To me, it wouldn't feel as true to the experience of what it is to be an adult who is really grappling with the complicacy of a character like Bruce, who is both um, clearly extremely complicated, really an asshole in many ways, you know, um, not a good father sometimes, and certainly not a good husband a lot of the times, and has this very, very unforgivably dark side that we don't fully get to see. Um, but it's also this incredibly beloved father of this character who is is literally trying to draw him is trying to to grapple with this legacy that he has left with her relationship with him so um would the show be different now if it were made now yes probably they would probably deal with that i think especially that encounter in the car a little bit more head-on um and make a little bit of a stronger point about how horrible that is but i'm I'm not sorry that it exists in the show that the way the way it does right now, because I think um, it allows us to grapple with it as Big Allison is grappling with it. And that feels more honest to the experience of the show that allows us to sort of go along with it and, um, you know, never fully judge him for these things. I mean, I think it gives us like... It does not shy away from painting a portrait of a difficult, bad person sometimes who also we understand this great love and affection she has for him. Um, and so I think it's it's complicated and I'm glad it is complicated. I, I guess that that would be my answer sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I, again, I don't think it gives, I don't think the show gives a pass where it's like, oh, shrug, you know, whoopsie. Like in the way that I think there are shows that do give, people with abhorrent behavior that is not unacceptable now, a sort of like, what are you going to do? You know, like, I mean, whatever. We're, we don't have to talk about Oliver and Nancy and Bill Sykes, but like Ooh. there are shows that have shading around these things. And there are shows that do not have shading around these things. And it's sort of like, whoops, no, whatever. Like, and I don't think this show does that. I think it's very much a portrait of a complicated man um, that we are not supposed to be like, but he's great, you know. Right, right. And I think I think it's an interesting, important point because I think you're right. The show doesn't let him off the hook, but it also is something to keep in mind as like creators, right? That like that is also something that audience members can bring to the room is like a almost like a shut it down. I have no sympathy for him because of this action. And I th it's an interesting in something that it, I think it does want you to investigate, you know, a lot of everyone has a family that has every family has its dynamics and has weird things. And like that you look back and you're like, Oh, I probably don't know the whole story behind that. And like, mm -hmm. even if it's not, even if things that are a whole lot less heavy and less serious than what she's investigating, um, you know, so I, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting thing to me that like, if it were written today, it would probably be different there would probably be some kind of something 
even though it still holds him to account, he gets in trouble. She immediately is like, I believe that's a euphemism, you know, furnishing a mall beverage. That's a euphemism. Like right. there is like a point of view that you can color things with that. I think, you know, it, it certainly leaves room for the audience to engage with that as much or as little as each individual kind of wants to, which I is, I think in the case of this show, a very smart, wise way to go with it because it's in keeping with the spirit of the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a show that is remarkable for how complex these characters are. Um, all of them. And it was funny when I was reading it again, I was thinking about the character of Helen um, and and how I, I have a I have a pet peeve, full disclosure, about um, shows where clearly someone on the writing team has or or everyone on the writing team especially and i'm not not always but i will say it often happens where it's like a male writing team and you can tell that they want to write a strong female character and so they have you know the only the manifestation of that is like a woman who's like i'm strong i can do everything like i can do whatever and like has a song about how strong they are and like it's all like strong 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 and, and reading helen i was like and listening to Judy Kuhn's unbelievable performance, I'm like, you know, this is the difference. Like, Helen is an extraordinary character because she is not, like, capital S strong. Like, she has, she is a woman who has, as she says, like, sublimated all of her, like, she doesn't stand up to Bruce almost ever, like, and he kind of walks all over her. Like, she, she, you could, you could describe her as being on like the weaker side of like in terms of her actions you don't see her being like rah 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 strength in the way that you see a lot of like one note characters nowadays that that present that way but at the same time like oh my god there's just worlds of complexity in her and she's so fully realized that like if you just said to someone like oh yeah she's the mother character and she like Make sure, makes sure that everybody's happy and kind of like plays the piano. Like a, a, a lesser version of that character would just be this sort of like weak, you know, woman with no desires. But she is so not that at all. Even though she isn't like taking on the world and standing up to men and like doing all these kind of performative feminist acts. And I think that's the difference between having women writing a woman um sometimes is that she's a fully she's a fully fleshed out human being who is acting like a fully fleshed out human being and um that is what you want i mean that is what we are looking for in this anyway that is all to say this is these characters are all of them very interesting and very truthful and honest you know like and even if the complexities like that, it, it engages with everyone quite honestly and not as certainly not as caricatures, but in the yeah. end, you make a great point about Helen, who is fundamentally a secondary, like almost forgettable character. We keep laughing about some of the characters in this recent production of Sweeney Todd that people seem to not remember are in the show. And like, wow, Ruth Ann Miles so good as beggar woman. I'm like, yeah, 
Beggar woman's always been, like, <laughs> always. No, always been there. Uh, well, you, also, you look at, like, side note about that, but you look at, like, who's played the beggar woman in different productions, and it's, like, Audra McDonald, Victoria Clark. I'm like, yeah, this was never really, like, an ensemble specialty, guys. <laughs> like, yeah, it was not. Anyhow, but it's just funny. It's, it's hilarious to think about it. But she is very much a secondary character. It is not her show. It's not her journey. And, uh... And I think even in Days and Days, there is a lot of room for interpretation about what that song really means and what she's really saying. Um, but but the point is, is that she's fully fleshed out and three-dimensional and complex in a way. And it doesn't feel, again, doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like, oh, we have to give, like, you know, oh, you just had to write this song for, or this moment or whatever to, it's, it, you know, it feels very um, smartly orchestrated the entire show feels very smartly orchestrated in the way that it goes about what it does which to me is going to segue into my next thing which is you know from a i'm gonna pick the dramaturg brain which obviously is half of what we do on this show just the the show is remarkable i think in the way that it is structured and in the way that it goes about telling the story non in a non-linear fashion and i think about um like your analysis of chorus line, which like rocked my world in, ter- in terms of the, like the, the, how the show is though not a traditional structure is still structured. I- I'm wondering if you have similar thoughts or feelings on the structure of fun home and what, what works about it ver- and what, and even like how that comes to be and or what you experience when you're in taking it. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned Chorus Line because I was going to say it is like Chorus Line, actually, in a way that I I don't think I realized until I was reading the script. Um, yeah, I think it. I think the structure is, I think Chorus Line is the closest thing um, to look at, even though it's obviously extremely different um, in terms of its subject matter. But uh, it is, it is definitely an interesting and tricky structure. And it, and it's one of those things where I'm like high degree of difficulty um, to do something like this. Hard to use as a model, I think, because it's so specific. And I feel like it would be difficult to kind of base another thing on it. Um, but yeah, I think both Chorus Line and this show have what I usually call a superstructure, which is that, you know, in the same way that Chorus Line um, has, like Chorus Line has the audition so they're kind of getting through the day with the audition it also has the superstructure which is like the entirety of the show is about growing up like the songs go in the all the dancers talk about growing up so that's the or you can go back to the chorus line episode if you want to hear me talk more about it's a good it's one of my personal um, favorite episodes for anyone i it's a great i very proud of that episode oh yeah it was a, it was a good one um, really you so it. this one i think I like is kind it's of similar. important to be clear it's because annika killed it i love that episode because annika- no <laughs> there there is there is is no annika podcast without you i mean we no, are no, no. we are a team it's a team but like i just we are, we are the... mind. she actively blew my mind while we were recording i was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> um well i will not blow your mind as much with this one but basically like I, I think that there are certain secrets to this success of this show, um, which does bop around a lot more than choruses. I mean, you don't, it does jump from like Allison, now medium Allison, now big Allison. Um, big Allison is present the entire time. Do I love a narrator character who has more unfinished business, unfinished 
business than they think they do? Why, yes, I do. And we have a really good example right here. Um, I also think the show is very clever in that right at the top, pretty much, Big Allison sort of states the purpose of what she is attempting to do. It isn't sort of like oh, I'm just going to write about my family or like, let me introduce you to my family. And then she kind of realizes that she's trying to grapple with this thing. I think she, um, you know, she, she says it so boldly at the top, like kind of like, you know, I, I was gay. I'm gay. My father was gay. Like he killed himself after I came out. Like this is the, it's kind of the stated thesis of the entire show, which is like, I need to look at that. I need to try to, like, she literally is trying to draw this. She's literally trying to capture this question that has kind of haunted her her entire life. And um, because she has done that, I think we are ready to with her on whatever journey we're going to. Because, um, first of all, the you know, the idea that he, that this character we're going to get to know is going to end in such a dramatic way. Um, you know, how is he going to become this person who is going to step in front of a truck and end his own life? Um, and I think one of the other brilliant things the show does is, you know, Big Allison's ability to stay on track kind of disintegrates over the course of the show um, as she gets closer and closer to his suicide, but also to the stuff that she is more actively grappling with, like her coming out process, you know, obviously that, that very complicated, like she writes the letter, the parents reaction is very weird. Like it doesn't go where you think. Um, so I think we have classic kind of like, not an unreliable narrator, but a narrator who is not able to remain, um, objective in the way that narrators often can, because this is, this becomes something that she has to become an active uh, um, participant in in a really active way and, and it's one of my favorite moments in drama um, ever ever when Bruce says are you ready to go for that drive and it's big Allison that steps into that car with him it's such a stunning moment because it's so jarring um, to have her step into this narrative that she's been separate from this entire time and it just it just shows you how much she is living this still that this isn't something that she's able to kind of maintain a distance from because she's so actively living in that car and that last conversation she had with him looking for clues looking for you know something that she could change that might change the trajectory of what he chose to do um it it's so smart and it's so like it's such a gut punch in that moment because you just realize that she is so present. She's so much more present in this whole thing than she, than she even, I think thought herself at the beginning of it. So, um, yeah. So basically it's, it's a very complicated structure, but it is because it is given that, that spine underneath it, that central question of sort of like, I'm going to attack with this. Um, you are always on this with her, no matter where she goes in terms of young, old, like her journey is in there. But really, the like her growing up. I mean, it's, it is fascinating that like the story of her growing up and discovering who she is is kind of a secondary part of the the spine of this show, which is ultimately, you know, her grappling with this relationship with her father and how much um, 
that, how much she had to do, I think, with her father's suicide, how much that, that relationship, you know, like her own guilt and feelings of, of just grief and confusion and like trying to figure out who her father was and what the truth of truth was of his life while she's figuring out hers, I think is, is really the, like, um, the central engine of the whole show. And then, you know, obviously that very last moment with the airplane going back to like, I'm, I'm a, like the moments where I was looking down at him and it's like, there's so much, I mean, it's such a rich tapestry, but I can understand why it took them a long time to develop it. But I bet there were times where it didn't feel as clear what story we were watching and it, it would have been less um, compelling, I think. Totally. And I think you're right to like, cause as I was thinking about it, I hadn't thought about it until you were talking about all of it. Um, but truly, like, for as much as it's a non-linear story, the story of Middle Allison is actually linear because Middle mm -hmm. Allison starts by, like, going off to Oberlin and it's her story actually is linear. Every time you're checking back in with Medium Allison, it is, like, the next time they want you to check back in with Medium Allison. Small Allison, we have no idea in what order any of those things happen, actually, between the various, you know, the various story points that we see about small Allison, but it's all really building up to the what you talk about, which I agree is one of the like, you know, incredible moments in the show when she, when big Allison is forced to step into the story and it kind of crystallizes. And to me always makes me ask the question like, so, okay, so is this the moment she grew up? Is this the moment she had to grow up? She was forced to grow up the instant she got in that car because it was confronting that thing and it, it it doesn't say that it i don't but it does raise that question in a really powerful and interesting way while not ever saying it you know what i mean just by like that simple shift it's really really a stunning i agree completely um and so and the other the last thing i wanted to touch on i'm going to come in with a little bit of a spicy hot take um perhaps but and i'm going to relate so when we did the the episode about Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, I think we were both really surprised at how strong that show in itself was in terms of its writing, that it wasn't depending so much on its kind of environment and its different presentation, um, even though its presentation was so excellent. There is something to me about Fun Home that, and having been, you know, around and knowing some of the things, I, I'm never sure where the line is. I do think that being in the round is part of what made this show as powerful and as resonant as it is with audiences, because I think it does force you to like, you're, you're forced to imagine a lot of the circumstances in which they're in You're for, it's not a realistic depiction of like, Oh, we're in a house. Like you don't have walls. You don't have things like you're just forced to. So I think it does bring it. It forces you to bring something of yourself into it. So it does start to feel like it is your family or a house that you might've grown up in. You don't really know what this weird Victorian house they're growing up in is. And I remember very distinctly, cause I did not see it at the public, but I saw the national tour where it was on proscenium stages and they had to, there's a moment in the show um, that was I don't even remember what it's actually called, but it's like the return to home. It's like one of the like numbers in the score. And it's the moment that medium Allison and Joan come back to the Bechtel home. And it's the first time in the conceived way of the show that you actually see 
the house. You see the Victorian wallpaper. You see the chandelier. Like you see all these things, and they they constantly had to reinvent that moment as the the show went from proscenium to the round to back to proscenium and and whatnot. And it, it's an it's such an interesting thing to me because I think it's like on Broadway, it had this impact of like it you felt like a certain majesty about the house kind of come in and like, oh, it felt much more like the prodigal son returns to me as like, a, Oh, there is that time that you come home for the first time. Like, and you're not, it's not your home anymore, but like, it's your home. And, and yet the flip side of that, when it's on a proscenium and, and the national tour and uh, the public, like you saw the, you actually saw the Bechtel home for the first time. And it's just, you know, in this like Victorian, and the, the the wallpaper and all of the um William Morris wallpaper, like all the just all the things that like it, it to me is such a stark moment when you're forced to be like, oh, this is not like a house that I would have grown up in. And I always wonder if that is actually working against the show or if that's a strength or or whatnot. Does it work in both settings and can and contending with that as a production team? So I'm cur- I'm just curious for your thoughts on it. Like how do how do you how do you feel about the show? Do you think it holds up in a proscenium setting? Do you think it is kind of depending on being in the round? What is your what's your feeling on that? Well, I think first a credit to Sam Gold for um it is very hard to adjust a production that you've done so specifically in one space. And I saw it both at the public and then at Circle in the Square, and I do think he did a really beautiful job. Um you know, I think I think it can work in, um, I mean, I, I think what made it work in the, in the, uh, in the round is that, you know, it's a memory play. Ultimately, the whole thing is existing inside the head of big Allison, really. Um, and it is a play that is about, you know, that is through the, the lens of a child's memory, a teenager's journal, like it's all existing, as we said before, like through Allison. So I think what makes it work about being in the round is that you have that sense of like, you know, it, it's hard to pin down. It's a little bit abstract. It's like you're watching everything kind of move around. Um, but I think there, there's, there's also value to having like, obviously you can't like raise a curtain and show this like super detailed, um, Victorian living room in the round in the same way you can, if it's a proscenium because you, you don't have wallpaper really like, you know, so I think you can do it either way. Um, and I think there's value to both. I mean, I, I liked, um, I liked the memory play element of it, um, in the round. I liked seeing the sort of like non realized thing because it's funny because like one of the things that I think is interesting about this show in the same way that the brothers feel like they're not necessarily, key to the plot or that fun home home number is not really key to the plot, but also like kind of has to be there for different reasons. Um, I think the fact that it's a funeral home is something that I always forget a little bit because the house, which is so much like Bruce's passion feels so much more resonant for me in, in the plot than the fact that it's a funeral home. Like I feel like actually thematically the funeral home doesn't really play that much of a, um, role as opposed to this this house which is like kept like achingly pristine like you know what it is to live in that house it's like um you know you can feel like the the pledge 
surfaces. It's like nobody really wants to live in that precise a Victorian house. They're not comfortable. They're not, you know, they're like showpieces. And the fact that Bruce, who is this person who is living this kind of like, like barely keeping it together, but like barely keeping appearances together um, while he's like, you know, messy under the surface. I think that the house is such a, an apt metaphor for his himself like you know and and everybody around him has to be like completely you know nervous and tense all the time because you know that at any moment it could all just kind of go horribly wrong as we see it does when he has when the house goes wrong um and i think you know at the end when he's gotten that other house which is like was a wreck 15 years ago and now is even more of a wreck and he's like trying to fix it it's like that's such a also a, an amazing like metaphor for this person who's like well beyond being able to to fix something um and is just kind of continuously you know trying and uh, like it's kind of a hopeless case at that point but um so um yeah but i but i also feel like they've done such a beautiful thing in the script which is that i think the moment where um Allison, medium Allison says to Joan about like, my dad sends me books and I read them and we talk about them. And, and Joan like points out that that's kind of a weird thing to do in college when you're reading so many books yes. and medium Allison is like, oh yeah, I guess it is kind of a weird thing. Like, I think there's such a brilliant thing about having, seeing that house through Joan's eyes and seeing it be fully realized in that moment, because I do feel like that's so true of childhood of like the things that you completely take for granted because whatever it's your you know it's how you grew up you don't even think about it and then like a moment like when you do go to college and then you come back and you see it with fresh eyes and you're like oh this is weird this is a weird thing like this is not this is not everybody's upbringing this is not a normal thing so i think revealing the house in that moment fully is kind of brilliant because like you are now you know with medium allison looking at this show house and being like oh wow okay you know weird. right like yeah and even when he's she's like you know go up i figured i put her in like this bedroom like there's yeah. a particular like room name and it's the like lilac room or something yeah, the lilac. it's so funny all right and that brings us to our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things in fun home so who is your favorite character in fun home Oh, this is tough because I really love them all. But I, I have to give it to Helen just for the reasons I talked about earlier. I think she's such an amazing character. And I kind of, I, I feel like I always end the show wanting a whole other show just about Helen's experience of this all. Well, you can read the sequel to Fun Home, uh, the book at least, which is Are You My Mother? Which was is all about Alison Bechtel's relationship with her mom. Well, there you go. So maybe there will be a sequel to maybe. the fun home. Who knows? Um, yeah, I I love that. I mean, I think you're so right about all things Helen. But I I love I I think it's great. And Judy Kuhn's performance as Helen is like one of the like was just amazing. And then when Rebecca went in, Rebecca Luker went in for her, and Rebecca was also amazing. Like it's such a meaty, great role. So yeah. I wholeheartedly endorse that. So what about you? What is your favorite character? I'm going to go ahead and give it to small Allison um, because I, I really, I, I think it's one, it's such a great role for a kid. Um, but she has so much of the heart of the show wrapped up in her, I think. And I, I love her songs. I love kind of just, and maybe it's my own, you know, lived day experience, you know, whatnot, but there's something about the, like, 
joy that she operates with as a kid that does kind of evaporate as she gets older, which I do think is an interesting kind of thing about this show is that like, and partially it's like what we're seeing and whatnot, but she becomes this very serious, you know, butch dyke. Um, and yet as a kid, like she wasn't quite that she was silly and weird and has all these like weird quirks and stuff. And it's, just, it's uh, anyway, I just, I really, I love that character. And I think Sydney's initial performance also is like, uh, to me, one of the great, uh, great kid performances ever. Um, but truly just, yeah, I think, so I think I have to say small Allison cause I, I look forward to every time she's on stage. Yeah. And, and yes, definite shout out to Sydney Lucas. Brilliant, brilliant performance. Really. I'm so glad that it's been like, that was their Tony performance, her doing ring of keys. And I'm really, really glad that we have that on camera because it, man, it's a, just a masterclass. Um, what's your favorite song in fun home? I mean, I got to give it to ring of keys. I just like, I think it's so brilliant. I think it's unlike any other song in the musical theater canon. I think it kind of captures what it means to be a kid and have kid thoughts in that way. And I just, I just think it's great. I, it's hard to not frankly say ring of keys just because it is that first off the Janine Tesori melody is absolutely killer. I, and the way it builds the, the, the point of view of it, it's really hard to not say it. I, so I, I agree, although I'm going to use my opportunity to give a shout out to Changing My Major, which I also <gasps> think is one of the most astonishing numbers in musical theater in a way that is like very different from Ring of Keys, although it's on the same like trajectory in terms of like coming to terms with uh, your sexuality and your attraction to people. But um, some of the the rhymes that Lisa Crone, like the, the rhyme game of Changing My Major in and of itself is so fantastic. Um, but yeah, uh, so but, good. but just like capturing, I think also too, not to get too personal, but I do think it also does a really incredible job of capturing, um, what it is to be in, in that moment after your first like encounter with, in this case, uh, she doesn't, you know, Allison does not marry Joan. They did not have that significant relation. You know, it's not like she's the love of her life in any way, but that experience with another woman and <clears throat> that having that first experience that you're like, oh yeah, this is right. Like this, this feels right. Um, and, you know, for gay folk that is, and I imagine for straight folk too, that is still a thing like your post virginity kind of moment or whatever. Um, you know, how does one define virginity? That's a whole other thing. But I just think it does such a wonderful job capturing what that feeling is, what that emotion is, and and falling head over heels for somebody in such a wonderful, innocent way um, that I I it, that I love that song too, so. Yeah, yeah. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Fun Home? Um. I mean, I think I have to give it to that moment when Big Allison sits down in the car. I mean, it, it just is such a stunning moment. It really is one of my favorite, like, singular moments in theater in general. Um, so I feel like I feel like I got to go with that. Although with a, with a sort of, like, uh, second to, like, just the like I think their gut punch moment in the show always for me is is Helen saying don't you come back here um which is so harrowing and heartbreaking and like 
feels so unexpected at the time. But but yeah, that moment in the car I think is is mine. What about you? Um <clears throat> hard it's hard to say. I mean, I it's hard to say. I think my because I also there's just like so much there I have so much wrapped up in this show for me like history-wise and whatnot. I think I'm going to go ahead and say one of the like just kind of nerdy musical theater things that I love about it. So we talk so often about like in the structure of musical theater and all the things that like you have to give your protagonist an I want song or like we have to know their want and da 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 da. And you know, in a musical you've got to establish things musically and 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 whatnot. And you raised this in Problem Life Marie and I saved it till now because I, I observed when I was doing the show most recently, like the protagonist of the story is Big Allison. She says what she wants in dialogue. She she sets up what we're doing. But the first real song that we get, the hook of the song essentially is them repeating what her dad wants, what he wants, he wants, he wants. And the world of this family revolves around him. And it's such a, for whatever reason, it is, it's not, I think of it as subtle. It's not subtle at all, but in terms of like, it's repeating the same thing over and over and over again, but it's just, it sets up the world of the show in such a smart way that is like, it's directly telling the story of like, you got to get the house ready and it's built around like a plot device, but it also is introducing him as a character in a way and the family dynamic that it's all wrapped up about him. And like, he wants, he wants, he wants, he won't like this. He won't like that. And so we know so much about him and all the particulars, but it doesn't feel like we're learning all that. So that's, I, I just, it was, a, to me, it was, a, it's an Easter egg. It doesn't, it's not probably actually an Easter egg, but it's something that like really struck me. Cause I, you know, you get lost in the various descriptions of the things and the melody and it's great and all of the complexities and you're learning the world, but like it is not so subtly telling you that this world revolves around him and like, yeah. And in a musical theater way, in the larger structure sense, it sets him up as a protagonist, weirdly, because like we're so used to knowing what a protagonist wants and that being what is like constantly at play. And yet it is what he wants. And it's such a perfect distillation of like how to define characters and and circumstance, I think, within the structure of musical theater. Yeah, no, that's great. It's it's the show is very smart that way. It really like he's not he is the center of it and also not the center of it like the showy center because the other the other thing to say not to sound like you but like i think it's undersung how important big allison is in terms of actually making the show work because she doesn't speak a lot i mean she's there all the time but she's always like in taking information and that's like really hard to do as an actor i think actually the someone another podcast i listened to that i love um talked about like nicole kidman being the queen of like intaking information like nobody intakes information as well as nicole kidman that can just like constantly be told like things and she like it doesn't seem like she's like oh my god i'm learning it's like just the effortlessness of that that's a really i think actually hard thing to do authentically and so she is the while the show is about her she is the glue that holds the show together in a very silent way oftentimes yeah yeah, and the fact that she's not just telling you the story, I mean, that she's so actively, like, she needs to hear the story as much as she's, you know, it's 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 great. It's great. I agree. So that will bring us to our penultimate segment, 
corner of the sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So I, you know, I've said this is the little show that could. I think it absolutely like stands apart in a lot of the Broadway landscape. Um, in terms of being such a small, intimate musical that um, really like went up against some gargantuan <clears throat> big shows when it first came on Broadway and yet like prevailed over them at the Tonys. And I, I do think that is like part of its place in history as this like the movement of, I think when we reflect back on like the 2010s of these like, you know, art house musicals doing well on Broadway and the like the band's visits and the Come From Ways, the Dear Evan Hansons, the kind of less typical big showy musicals that really find success in a critical and commercial way and in this weird kind of, or Hades Town, you know, like the list goes on of the, like, I just feel like calling them art house musicals. But um, but also I, I, to elevate what you said, and it was already in my notes for this section, you said it already in the show. This is also a show entirely written by women um, that, is absolutely killer it's the first to like win tonys for it and and all that business i don't i don't think it's not the first show in the history of broadway to have an entirely female writing team i don't think that's the case i know it's the first to win a tony i don't think it's the first because there have there have there's some woman who wrote a solo show at some point yeah yeah i, I don't think it's the first i don't but... think it's the first but it is still like as a as a piece of feminist you know, theater history, but also like feminism generally, I think it is really, um, really striking for that. And also just like centering a butch lesbian and her, you know, coming of age story alongside her closet homosexual father, you know, doesn't exactly scream Broadway musical. And yet um, they, they were a Broadway musical that succeeded on Broadway, both artistically and, um, and financially um so uh, but yeah what do you think of as its corner of the sky yeah i mean i think everything you said i think it's i think it's another example of really like anything can be a great musical if it's a really good story really beautifully told um and really sensitively told and told with music in a really um rich way you know like I feel like the fact that the show had the trajectory it did um really helps to prove that because I feel like um this was a really good story it was really good you know like yes it's it's a graphic novel that has turned into a thing I think that's a good point to make yes it is a female team that's a good point to make you know yes it is about lesbians and and this like you know grappling with these these issues in ways that hadn't been seen before and, and centering like butch lesbians specifically, but like, also I feel like it's sort of like just proving again that musical theater as a form is nothing if not elastic and built upon the idea that like it, it is really good stories, really beautifully told and it can come from anywhere and be anything. And so, um, and also like start there, you know, don't don't set out to make like a feminist musical centering lesbians and then like find your source material, find something that speaks to you and go from there and make it into a, like a little weird show that becomes a beautiful big show, you know? It's a very um, artist centered piece 
both very yes creation and what it's talking about and exploring and 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 for that it is not indifferent from like Sunday in the Park with George on some level right like it yeah it's so I completely agree completely agree totally and and definitely nobody ever like set out to make this into a musical because it was like this is going to sell a billion tickets (laughs) you know like but like it did but it (laughs) because that's what happens when you make a really good musical and like yeah if you build it, they will come. And like, there, there was an interview at one point with Janine story where she, she was like, I feel like I could not write another thing and this would be enough. Like I, yeah. I created like this it was such a fulfilling process and, and what the end result was like, they, they seem to have created what they set out to create. And that is often not the case. And, and it was received, I think as they wanted it to be received was again, it's not always the case. So yeah. It's also uh, the other like weird thing I was thinking about in t- what we talked about with this show. It's also we've done so few like not like ninety nuns. We've so done few like one and dones, and this is also a one and done, no intermission, yeah. and and I don't think anyone's upset about it. No, no. ninety nun is ninety nun. A lot of a lot of shows could could benefit from being ninety nun. Yeah, yeah, but also like you know, I think it's a atypical structure and it you know i don't know where you would kind of put that intermission right and like and so it kind of it goes to reinforce your point that like tell the story you want to tell in the way you want to tell it yeah definitely well that wraps up for our deep dive into fun home but first annika has to give us a clue about what comes next what comes next so here's my clue for our next show Stephen Sondheim was approached to write this show and said no because Mary Martin was not Jewish. I honestly, it's such a great piece of trivia that I did not know. And it frankly would not get me to what the show is because it's so out of left field, but it's kind of why I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, there's a, there's a few pieces there that you could kind of parse out if you want to. Which I think also just like sets, it sets a perfect plate for our discussion of this, shall we say troubled, uh, troubled and yet famous musicale, spectacular. Yes, indeed. And when you think about Stephen Sondheim having written this show, <laughs> it, it breaks your brain. <laughs> I don't know about that Woo-wee. one. In the words of, wow. In the words of Leslie Stahl, Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's a niche. That's I need to get them <laughs> off Twitter. Okay. Um, that's so that wraps it up. We will see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Bye.